This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Whisper Room, Eventide Audio, Spectra 1964, and Roswell Pro Audio. So get ready to rock. I got a text message from Kirk Johnson, Prince's um, personal manager, and he said that he needed somebody to run an SSL and record the tape. I texted back, thanks, I, I can't, um, I've never run a tape machine before. And then my phone rang and it was him and he was like, that's okay, uh, just come just come right now and, and, and we'll just, we'll figure it out. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. The Spectra 1964-101 amplifier provides unequaled headroom, low noise, and a linear output, irrespective of transient audio peaks. In the studio, this means that critical details from your microphone get through to your DAW. The 101 was used by Tom Dowd, Muscle Shoals, Stack Studios, and The Record Plant on records by ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, and John Lennon. Today, Spectra 1964 brings that same incredible sound to your studio with the STX-100 mic pre. Learn more at Spectra 1964. What do Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Dave Pensato, and George Massenberg all have in common? They all have great things to say about Eventide. Originating in a New York City basement in 1971 with the original Instant Phaser and H910 Harmonizer, Eventide continues to transform the sound of music with the iconic H9000 Harmonizer, visionary guitar effects like the H9 pedal, and now a whole suite of incredible plugins for your studio. Go to eventide.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. If you're sick of bothering the neighbors when you are trying to record your music or ruining your recordings with outside noises, but you're not ready to spend a ton of money on permanent studio construction yet, then consider getting a Whisper Room ISO booth for your studio. Whisper Room offers the instant solution for a comfortable, quiet, ventilated, portable ISO booth with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention recording studio rock stars. Go to whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Evan Bakke, the chief engineer at Power Station New England in Waterford, Connecticut. Originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Evan started working under producers Matt Kirkwald and James Fluff Harley at Master Mix Studios and The Boiler Room, and also at Pound Sound in St. Paul, partnering on many projects with producer-mixer Jeremy Tapero. 
In 2009, spent a couple of years in Las Paz, Bolivia, South America, and built a recording studio in Che Guevara's old house before ending up back in Minneapolis to work as Prince's personal recording engineer in 2013 and 14. More recently, in 2015, Evan moved to Connecticut to become the chief engineer at Power Station New England. I've put together a playlist of Evan's work in the blog show notes, and the tracks are a variety of consistently great-sounding recordings in different genres. So I'm psyched to dig into some great recording techniques here with Evan, learn more about running a pro studio in Connecticut, and perhaps even hear some cool stories about working with Prince. We'll see. Please welcome Evan Baki to Recording Studio Rockstars. Evan, are you ready to rock, dude? Let's, let's do it. Great to have you here on the show, man. It was nice to run into you at um, the AES event in New York, too. Yeah, it was great, man. It's, thanks a lot for having me. This is awesome. I love this show. My pleasure. It was a real, really cool to sort of discover you and the power station. What a beautiful looking studio. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Um, you know, it's it's designed after the power station in in uh, Midtown, so it's yeah. like. It's 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 not it's not an exact replica, but it's pretty close. It's amazing. It's awesome. Well, we can circle back on it, but um, rock stars, be aware that it is just like when you look at it, it's it almost looks like you're inside a giant recording sauna. Not because of the heat, but because you're just surrounded by gorgeous wood in every direction. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm awesome. sitting in it right now. Oh, cool, man! Right on. Are you? You're not in the live room though, right? I'm in, yeah, well, I'm in the, in, um, they call it the rhythm room. So it's the back dry, like, uh, room. So if you're looking from the control room, there's a, um, there's a booth in the back right. That's where I'm sitting. Very cool. Um, well, so let us know a little bit more in your own words about who you are and how you got started out in recording and stuff. Um, well, like you said, I'm Evan Baki, uh, originally from Minnesota. Um, I guess I started when my dad bought me a acoustic guitar, a little Alvarez acoustic guitar when I was maybe maybe 13 or 14 and I was no good, but I could figure out how to record myself, so I did that and Nice. My my first one was an Alvarez too. Alvarez Festival. <laughs> uh yeah, mine might be a festival. It's possible. Yeah. I think it is. Um and it still sounds good actually. Yeah, my, cool mine guitar. has since turned into a high string because the action got a little a little wacky. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I haven't played it for a while, but last time I did it was good. Anyways, um, then I started. Then I went to a music school in downtown Minneapolis. It was um, run by Tom Tucker. He was um, an amazing engineer. He passed away a few years ago, um, and. And while I was there, I got the opportunity to start working with um, with this guy James Harley as his assistant. Um, actually, for him and his assistant Smaz Nate Smazel, um, and those guys taught me more in one week than I did than I could have learned in ten years of school. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a a real benefit to being in a studio and watching people really do it. Yep. And it was it was it was good to sit back and see it was good to see like a an assistant and an engineer communicate with each other and see that relationship before I really sat in that chair. Yeah, um, no doubt. Because when I did, I was just ready. To, I was I was kind of ready to go, and it was it was pretty natural. But I was not expecting 
um, I wasn't expecting what it was. So it was, it was good. It was a good experience. What, um, and you said you had already done some recording school at that point, or this was even before you got into that? Yeah, I think it was at least a year, maybe a little more into recording school at that point. What kind of stuff were you guys learning? Was it tape machines? Were you, was it all, all Pro Tools at that point? It was all Pro Tools. Um, there there might have been a class, on the, like an analog class, that actually Eddie Chaletti would have taught. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I didn't take that class. I know Eddie really well, though. Um, and so everything was Pro Tools. There were, there were a bunch of, um, I can't remember what they called them. But there are Pro Tools rooms with just like, you know, you walk in a room and there's 30 computer rigs with Pro Tools. And so I would, I would sit in those rooms until four in the morning, almost every day. And then um, and then worked my way into a Trident 80 series room. Um, and let's see, what else do they have? Um, like the D commands had just come out and they had an SSL too. So it was... There were a couple consoles, but everything was Pro Tools. Well, you guys have some gorgeous consoles at the power station. I noticed, I think you have a um, Neve 8068, right? Yep. Yep. 32 channels. It's awesome. That's, Amazing. That's the one, or that's the same um, kind of console we had at Woodland Studios when I was interning down here in Nashville. Cool. Gorgeous. It's the greatest. Board. I love it. Yeah. It's amazing. How long have you guys had that board? We got it from Vintage King. Um, uh, going on four years ago, it came from Pachyderm, which was actually oh Minnesota. wow! So it's the same one that did um, uh, in utero. Yep, same one that did in utero. Um, did a uh, did a lot of really amazing records at Pachyderm. Like yeah, it, there were some sweet sweet records done there. So yeah, in your in utero, and before that, before it was in Pachyderm, it was um. I, if I get the story actually straight. I've heard of, I've heard a lot of different rumors, but it was at Electric Lady before that. It started wow. at Electric Lady. It's just jumping all uh, across the country, right? Yeah, and it did some pretty sweet records there too. So Rockstar's Electric Lady's in New York and Manhattan, right? And then Pachyderm it jumps all the way over to Minneapolis, uh, or at least Minnesota, right? Yeah, it's about an hour south of Minneapolis. Yeah, and then it jumps back to Connecticut for you guys at the power station. Yep. Yep. Right on. Um, okay, cool. So you're in, you know, in the rooms working with Pro Tools. Then you finally get into the console, you know, the room with the console. And what was it like a Trident ADB or something like that? Yep, exactly. Yep. That's a cool board. Those are great rock and roll consoles. Great console. Yeah, love that console. Yep. Very clean uh, and punchy, and you can get a nice yep. cr- crisp top end. Yep. Exactly. Yep. I still, I still love Trident consoles. Um, I worked on one for years in in St. Paul at Pound Sound. Um, you had mentioned that in the intro, but yeah, my friend Jeremy Tapero has a seventy series. Um, oh, cool! Which is basically it's basically the same thing as an as an eighty, um, but super cool. Um, what's some of the stuff that you remember learning about it first when you were in the studio and you know, watching an assistant work with uh, uh, you know a pro engineer or producer? Um, you know, versus maybe what you thought things were like. I think I realized how, um, at least at that at that point, being an assistant was like it was 
being organized on a level that I've had never even thought was possible at that point. Um, from from documenting outboard gear to Pro Tools to the console, the the whole thing was just it. It really had a very small margin of error to work with um, as an assistant, and so I picked up on that really quickly and developed a a really um, a, a way of taking notes that I actually still use to to this day, and um, and then at some point incorporated that into my Pro Tools sessions. So it was kind of like this kind of flawless. Or, or not, not not flawless, but in, at least in my mind, it, it, I never had any questions as to where anything was or how anything was was working. When it came to a console, outboard gear, and Pro Tools, it all had like a very similar documentation. So that was that was like the first and biggest, most important thing that I learned was detailed notes and yeah. and knowing where everything is all the time. When you say where everything is all the time, what do you mean? I guess I mean I guess I just mean from from um, from the Pro Tool sessions to the console to the patch bay, just having having an answer for the engineer whenever he needed it. Right. No head scratching. No head scratching. Head scratching was was yeah, it wasn't allowed. Weren't allowed to scratch your head. Head scratching is out. I was just scratching my head today as I was, you know, getting into an older session. And it is frustrating, and I think about that, and it's like, it feels like there's a real balancing act between, you know, how much time you want to put into documenting and organizing versus how much time you can afford to put in, depending on what kind of projects you're working on. Do you ever run into that? Do you feel like it's, you have any, you know, thoughts about what's the right balance for each session? Well... Yeah, I do actually. I think that my at at this point my when it comes to pro tools and the way that I'm working when I'm actually tracking, I don't take too many notes. I do have assistants at the at the power station that that are really great with with their note taking. Um but my pro tools sessions all basically look identical at this point. Like I think I could probably open a session from 8 or 9 years ago and it would look really similar. At least, at least color coordination and organization as it did, as it does now. So, so I'm able to kind of keep that to a minimum. And when I'm mixing stuff that's sent in to me, um, that someone else tracked, I don't know. I just turn the faders up. I don't even really look at the what the tracks are labeled as. I just otherwise, I think I'd go nuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> renaming everything and then and then and then on the on the back end if if someone says you know like we need to work on this track that i've then relabeled this something else or you know i just i just turn it up and i don't really document other people's work that much you know i feel like it, it would be nice if almost there was like a double naming system in there where you could keep the old name and you know put a new name yeah that would be nice i guess i guess you you can in the notes Underneath the track, I suppose, but yeah, I don't. I don't go that the far. The comments, yeah, you know, the, the first comments. thing I do with the comments is I close that window. It takes so much, so much space on the computer screen. <laughs> I do the same exact thing. Um, you know, and I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, we can we can gripe about a little bit, but 
the window that allows you to name tracks has always been like an Achilles heel for Pro Tools where it's this teeny tiny thing and you can barely fit any information in there. And you're like, man, even just doing like multiple takes of things starts to eat up all that little space. Uh-huh. So, so it yeah. becomes a real challenge sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, cool, man. Well, so do you want to talk a little bit about what your Pro Tools session is like? I mean, you know, you described it being kind of a, a system of color coding and everything. Um, what are some things you remember about how it's laid out and organized and any thoughts you have about, you know, here's a, maybe maybe ours doesn't have to match yours, but here's some good tips on how to arrive at our own um, system for that. Yeah, I think it's just probably repetition and what what my brain has kind of naturally made my sessions do. But um at the top, I've I've got, and this is this is for tracking and mixing basically. But at the top of the session, or the very left of, of the mix window, I've got a, a master fader followed by a print track. My master fader is yellow, and my print track is purple. Um, and then from then, I've got um, bass, guitar, green, drums, brown, and then vocals, red. Lead vocals are bright red. My background vocals are dark red. Um, guitars are dark blue. Acoustic guitars are light blue. Piano is a different light blue. And then strings are like a teal. Mm. And all of my buses, auxes, any reverbs, effects, um, all that stuff has no color at all. So, oh, so that's it, interesting. And that's, that's also... Um, it's also, you know, when I'm um, when I'm on a console. So when I've got um, my console laid out, it's it's identical to what's going on in Pro Tools. So if I'm looking at the desk, that same order is, is what my Pro Tools screen is. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff is really important. Um, it's one of my, you know. I don't, a pet peeve, I guess, in the studio is like, if a mic is going to come into mic line input one out on the floor, I want it to be on mic pre one. I want it to go to input one to Pro Tools. You know, I want everything to be one. You don't want to have to like jump all over the place with your numbers and what's going to what. Yep. It'll yep. just mess that's, you up. That's, I, I feel the same way. Yep. And it just keeps things moving quickly. Okay. So you talked about a print track. Can you explain to the rock stars what a print track is? Yep. So I basically, um, for the most part, I'm always monitoring through the very final stage of of my either recording or mixing process. So I've got a just a stereo audio track that is always on input mode, um, and and that's what I'm monitoring from. Um, so I, I know at that point that everything that I'm listening to is going through that stereo track. Mm-hmm. That way, if there's any issues or any anything, I know exactly what it's going to sound like. And, it, and at any time, I can just pop it into record mode, record where I'm at, and I've always got a reference of, of something that I was working on and where my head was at at that point. Mm, that's interesting. So it's like, that's like a short circuit for, you don't even need to bounce the session for this moment. You can just sort of record onto that track a little snippet. Yep, exactly. Hmm, okay, cool. Because that was my next question: is like, why do a print track? Why not just bounce sessions as mixes? Yeah, I like. I just really like. For, well, I guess I've always done it that way. Um, but 
but I, I like knowing that what I'm listening to is, um, I mean, I mean, there are things that can go wrong at any stage digitally well, mm-hmm. and analog too, but, um, uh, I like knowing exactly what I'm listening to is going to be exactly what whoever else is hearing that track is going to hear the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, cool. So let's see. Um, what are some other things that you might do with that print track? Do you ever punch in on a mix and find that that's a handy thing? Like you need to just fix a tiny part of your mix and so you only punch in little snippets? Or am I just make, you know, making up good reasons at this point? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, uh, I don't do that. I think like that would that would freak me out. <laughs> I would, I, if, if something felt weird, I would just reprint it. I mean, unless the song is super long. Right. I might I might do that, but in the end the final mix will be a print start to finish without without stopping. Right. That's probably uh, uh sensible, you know. Um <clears throat> the other thing is I guess it means that you can't do the faster than real time bounce. Um yeah. And yeah. And, and yeah. that's one reason why you might have been printing in the past too is cuz I think if you go back far enough the bounce didn't used to maybe didn't used to sound as good as printing to a track in pro tools. Yeah, I think there's truth to that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know, honestly, in my experience, faster than real time bouncing isn't usually all that fast anyway, because I'm usually using so much processing. Right. It yeah. Ends up being pretty I mean, close like, to the same. Exactly. Yeah. I I did do that. I I I'm trying to think about why I did that. Um, recently. But well, anyways, faster but, bounce. But, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember why. Um, but it ended up being like one and a half times the speed. So it didn't it didn't make a huge difference. Right. Yeah, time-wise. exactly. Now I guess if you're printing a track back, it also gives you a chance to actually see what those levels look like and see what the waveform looks like after it's printed. Yep, and it that, does do that too. That might be a nice visual insight into, you know, what's going on. Yep, that's true. Certainly back in the day and and probably still, honestly. You know, there was there was a real considered value to looking at your mix and going like, "Yeah, it looks like a brick, man." <laughs> that means I yeah. got it right, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These days, I I mean, I I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm still guilty of that sometimes, but I uh, I can I can I can uh, say that I'm working heavily on on not not. <laughs> not doing not, that not like breaking I used it. to. I'm not still, breaking it. I'm still trying. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, the loudness wars being in the past and and uh, dynamic range, you know, being valuable as far as um, streaming on streaming platforms so you don't get penalized uh, and that sort uh-huh. of thing. But still, there, I, you know, I, in my experience, there's still a sweet spot for what sounds really good. Um, or at least I it agree. seems it. Like, because one of the struggles is you know, if you're trying to create something for a streaming uh, destination, even though you can use some tools to kind of mimic what the streaming might do, you still don't really hear it until it's actually streaming, which means it's already been released. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. So, and, and you know what? I started. I I just started on this like this kick of 
I, I just got really into um, some Tim Palmer mixes. Actually, I've been into him for a while. Um, but then also Flood, like some of those Depeche Mode songs. And, oh, I, yeah. and I just kind of like like the the they the loudness is never an issue with those guys and they're not as loud as records are now yeah, yeah. and but they sound massive and so it's it's really got my my brain racked on on attention to different details than it than it has been in the past yeah i think about that too i mean i think about like dark side of the moon i'm like how, exactly. You know, how, what does that yeah. look like on my screen? And I don't recall ever feeling like that was anything short of being just right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, yep. Cool. Tell us uh, and the rock stars more about who Tim Palmer is. Um, Tim Palmer is an amazing engineer, amazing uh, producer, amazing mixing engineer. And uh, uh, I use um, this song called Trains by Porcupine Tree. It's one of the first songs I play in any new room I go into. I just think it sounds so good. It's amazing. Nice. And I think that that's an important thing, a reminder to all of us that like, it is very valuable to know what sounds good to inspire you when you're in a space. Um, and I think it's a good reminder too, to remember that, that it's not an absolute. Like, um, you know, just because somebody else played a particular track when when they were showing off a space or a, or a sound system doesn't mean that's the one that you have to use. You know, you can you can find your own inspired right. mix. Yep. Well, I think everybody should use Porcupine Tree Trains. All right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, I'll check it out for sure after this. It, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, maybe we can even sneak that into the YouTube playlist. Um, I think you I'll should. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so uh, I like to ask guests to share an inspirational quote as we kind of kick off the show too. You got anything you want to share with us? Um, Something to get us psyched to just yeah. hit the studio? Man, I think that anything by anything that Levon Helm has ever said in his life is inspiring to me. Yeah, Levon Helm, if you give it good concentration, good energy, good heart, and good performance, the song will play you. I love that. Nice. I like that. Yeah, it's like uh, when the song, when all those things converge, it just kind of guides you on what to do with the song in the studio yep. too. Yeah, totally. it's it's nice when when it feels so great actually when you listen to something and you just know what is needed next and you go out and and play that part or play that instrument and it's kind of you can discover things by accident but boy it kind of sucks a little bit. I mean it's like you can really kill a lot of time just noodling around on an instrument hoping you'll stumble on a good idea you know yeah it's true yeah yep but you can um, also find some freaking great ideas that way too that's true that's true how, how do you like to do that process what, what thoughts do you want to share on the the unexpected exploration of sound for for the next overdub for example man i'm kind of into 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 anything really um i love tracking bands live um if I can have uh, like the more good musicians in the room together playing off each other, like that is that's the best way to start and keep a creative process moving forward. Um, but but I'm totally into going down the rabbit hole with an artist and just finding some cool stuff to do and and moving quick and just keep keep inspiration high and and as long as everyone's inspired, then I'm. 
I'm I'm into I'm into trying anything. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're if somebody's just messing around on a track and they play a whole bunch of stuff and a lot of it doesn't sound right, do you have a process that you find is like really useful for extracting the best stuff out of it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It it I guess totally varies on the on the situation, but if I if I if I feel that something is lacking and going down a, going in a direction that's not really benefiting the the song or or the or what will be the final product, I can I can try and figure out ways to kind of to get things back on track. But I I mean, really, the most important thing is is making sure everybody's having a really good time and having an inspired time. And, and as soon as that starts to fade, I try really hard to, to keep that momentum high. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, you know, just keeping everybody, uh, there's a lot, yeah, there are a lot of things that will try and derail your session, especially when you're working with other people and they're getting frustrated or um, especially if you have experience as the engineer or the producer and the people you're working with are a little bit greener in the studio. Yeah. Yeah, that's there's there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, um, um, that can, it, that it, can bring excitement to the studio, but it can also bring like, you know, uh, the, uh, very easily getting derailed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But there's there's also a cool thing um, about watching someone who's really green in the studio, but is really talented in the room with people who are seasoned and watching them kind of almost immediately turned into a seasoned musician like on the spot. It's that's mm. a pretty cool thing to see. Yeah, because usually people bring something to the studio with them. Right. There's, there's a reason yep. they're there. Yeah. And and it may start with the ability to recognize what's really good and be followed by hopefully the ability to play what's really good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. Yeah. I mean <laughs> like when it comes down to it the players are good and the song is good. It's probably going to be really good and if any one of those elements is not it's it's tough to it's tough to navigate that during while while it's actually happening i did a mic shootout for my vocals in the studio and tried 20 different microphones from the shure sm7 to a vintage neumann u67 but was impressed that my favorite of all was the roswell pro audio delphos 2 large diaphragm condenser handcrafted in california roswell mics brings you inspired design and attention to detail to help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag check out their beautiful microphones including the mini k47 for only 349 at roswell ProAudio.com. I also like to ask guests to share kind of an important experience that might have been a failure in the studio, but turned out to be a real learning experience. You got anything you remember or want to talk about from you know that those early stages, or even maybe more recently? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm like fairly confident that I'm constantly failing and constantly learning from failures. Um, but I, I think that one thing that I um, I saw I saw a lot of arguments in the studio when I was young, like some oh, very yeah. <laughs> very like unnecessary arguments. Do you between... ever see anybody throw the drum kit? 
I saw chairs fly. I never saw the drum kit fly, but I saw, I saw chairs hit a wall a couple times. Um, and, and, um, and you know, like, like early on, I really, I was totally into these like documentaries, like some kind of monster, the making of Metallica is some kind of monster. Oh, yeah, was like, I yeah. loved, I still love it. But like, to me, it was kind of like, Oh, this is how records are made. Like people just get, super mad and argue all the time yeah behind and, the music um, right it, yeah right yeah and so i think that i i ended up kind of pulling that attitude into my sessions at, at times when it, i just really didn't need to and um because i just kind of thought it was normal that you just end up in these kind of little bickering things or arguments or whatever yeah um and then um and at, at some point, a friend of mine just kind of pulled me aside and was like, this is like a totally cool, fun session. And this, we don't need to argue. And I was just like, wow, it, you're to- totally right. And and that that totally set me straight. And so I don't do that anymore. Nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you sure I'm going to pick a fight with you, man? I bet you do. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could try. I mean, I'm going to just not let it happen, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I had some of that too. I remember hearing stories about producers being, you know, tyrants in the studio or like, uh-huh. you know, somebody, an intern or an assistant messes up and they get fired and they're never back in the studio again. You're like, wow, man, this yeah. world I'm I'm learning to to be a part of it's so intense and, and, and then you get into it and, and then after a while, same thing that you said, it's like, you're just like, that's ridiculous. There's like, there's all kinds of great people making brilliant music that, um, like their goal is to get along with people and for it to be a wonderful experience, not a crappy one. Totally. Yep. I mean, totally. Um, yeah, well, so let's see. Um, how about an aha moment for you? Something in the studio where you were like, where you remember things really clicking? I think that I would say, I would say that kind of piggybacks on that failure of arguments in the studio. But um, I also, I also did a lot of editing early on, um, like, like heavily editing yeah. the session, my sessions. Because um, you could. Because I could. And because I, you know, in a, in a way, like that was, that, when I started was the early two thousands and, um, you know, like I was into rock music and that's, that's kind of how rock records were made at that point. Um, and, and so I, I kind of embraced that and, and it, it, you know, it really helped my pro tools speed and, and helped me figure out a cool workflow. Um, but I think, you know, Minneapolis has such a cool, music scene um with a lot of like i would i would call them like really um genuine artists in minnesota and um one one night um my friend adam krinsky who's an amazing engineer um he uh he was working in the basement of twin town guitars in uptown minneapolis and I think it was like four thirty or five in the morning, and we went. I went down to see him, um, and he was just in in this basement with just a 
bunch of people, so many people. And and they were creating some of the coolest music I had heard at that point. It was so good. I, I don't remember what it was. I don't remember what it sounds like. I just remember being like totally amazed at that there there were hip hop guys and rock guys and, and just good friends and people that had never met before and they were all just creating something so unique and so cool and they were trying everything and almost and it was it was like I it was like I I walked into everybody so in the zone that that nobody was messing up when they would try something so everything that was mm. tried just ended up working and then and everybody was hugging goodnight and and that was like it was such an eye-opening experience for me because it, i had such a machine like attitude about recording at that point where it was kind mm. of like pre-production and then record drums and then record bass and then record guitars and then record vocals and then edit all these things in between and then tune and then all these things where it was like it it was a a, a like it was like a black hole in my mind just like exploded into a whole new world and it was it was super cool um yeah you know what it reminds me of is i think one of the first things you discover and learn about in music is the idea that like the guy who's playing a million notes in the guitar solo like that it's it can be impressive but it might actually not be all that cool for the song or whatever it's like yeah we don't uh-huh. we don't need that flashy part there like playing too much musically and we forget sometimes that it's the same thing for us in, in, when we're engineering. It's like, just because yeah, we can, and you know, we, we learn these skills of like, oh, I know how to edit drums. I know how to tighten it all up. I know how to do all these cool things. And those are good skills to have, but it's like l- just playing way too many notes in the solo. You, you don't totally. need it all the time. Totally, totally. Like, you, you, I, think, I think I started to realize that like, I might not have been really listening to what I was working on. Like it was just kind of like, you know, I made sure the parts were there. And then once the parts were there, I made sure they were locked in, but maybe they just didn't need that. It was, you know, that was, yeah, that's a big aha moment for sure. Yeah. Well, um, I always called it the magnifying glass. It's the zoom. You can't, you have to learn that. Like you have to be zoomed out to have an over, perspective of the song and what it's like to listen. It's one of the uh-huh. reasons why like, you know, turning the volume down, you know, going halfway out of the room and listening like that, it just d- removes all this other stuff. So you're just totally right. step back listening or listening in the car. But then when you work on things and you edit drums and you tune a vocal and everything, you have to be super zoomed in. Totally. Yep. And one of the yep. things I remember learning early was like, was like, oh shit, I can't be zoomed out and zoomed in at the same time. It's not possible. Totally. <laughs> like yeah, you, man. I, you, yep. you just learn that, like, okay, right now I'm zoomed out. Okay, right now I'm zoomed in. And once you let that be, it makes it easier to just like do a task, finish it, you know, step back, yep. zoom back out again. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I at this point. Honestly, I don't think I could tell you the last time I I did that. I had that experience of editing everything and tuning everything. I, I don't do it anymore. It's just like it's something that I'm just not. It's not a part of my workflow unless it's like totally necessary or it's you know a creative decision. But well, it's um, funny. Like you learn how to be a super editor, and then you come back later and you learn how to. You, you like use those skills 
when they're needed. So totally. there, there are yep. those times where the band, you know, everybody hears a mistake somewhere and you just jump right in right. And you quickly. Yep. You fix it yep. so fast that they're like, they're still waiting to talk about how it needs to be fixed. And you're like, no, I already did it. You just heard it. And they're like, right. whoa, right. how'd and you do just, that? You know? Yep. Yeah, right. There's that. And then it just keeps, it keeps the flow. It, it keeps everybody's attention on what's important. And then, and the, you know, as soon as that thing is fixed, they don't have to worry about that thing anymore. And they're worried about making the song even better. Yeah, that's a big part of um, the experience too that I've noticed is that like it can be very easy to fixate on the the three things that are bad when you play the song down and completely miss the fact that like you know ninety things are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. There's some truth to that. You know, one of the reasons why it's great to fix something right away for somebody if they need it. Yep. Yep. Cool, man. So um, you're in Minneapolis. Uh, it just so happens that you worked with somebody who was a, a wee bit famous named Prince. Do you want to share any any story of what the, uh, you know that experience was for you, or how you ended up doing that? Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I, I understand that you may, if you tell me, you may, if you tell us, you may have to kill us afterwards, but we're willing to. To, you you know, guys are all willing to take that. We're that willing chance. to take the fall on this one. <laughs> all right, um, I I um, I was bouncing around quite a bit. I was I was kind of living out of my car, um, and doing a lot of traveling and just trying to to I don't know chase some sort of adventure that I had my whole life. I just couldn't really sit still, and I. Um, Ended up in Minnesota after leaving for a few years and coming back and leaving again, and um, and I kind of had this this thing where every city that I was in before I would take off for the next one, I would find a a good river and I would go do some fishing for an afternoon, and then I would hit the road the following morning. Dude, there's no way you ran into Prince out fishing on a on a stream. I'm not buying it. <laughs> nope. But I got rained out, so I decided to stick around for an extra day, um, so I could fish that following day. And I I went. I had no cell phone service. Came back um, to to my car, and I was gonna go. Um, I was basically gonna go see my parents and and tell them that I loved them, and I would see them next time. Um, and I got a text message from Kirk Johnson, Prince's um, personal manager, and he said that he needed somebody to that could run an SSL and record the tape. And I, um, I texted back, and I'd known a few people who have worked with Prince before, and and the stories were rarely uh, pleasing. Right. And so, so I was definitely cautious. And, um, and so I, I just texted him back. I said, thanks. I, I can't, um, I've never run a tape machine before. And, and then my phone rang and it was him and he was like, that's okay. Uh, it, just come, just come right now and, and, and we'll just, we'll figure it out. And, and I was like, I was like, I really, I really can't use the tape machine. I was like, I'll, 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 totally fine on your console but i was like I've, I've never used it before he was like yeah don't worry don't worry don't worry we'll be all right just if you can just come tonight just like help us get through the night that's wild and 
You were like, just as long as I can edit all of his vocals and drums. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because I'm real good. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. And and so I got there um, in the evening. It was hot out. It was, I think it was middle of August um, and the sun was going down, but it was super hot. And um, I mean, I was haggard. I had literally just gotten done fishing. Like I was, was pretty disgusting. Did you bring, and, did you bring Prince a large mouse bass? <laughs> no, I was fishing for trout, but uh, he had, he had a rule. Uh, nothing with eyes or parents was allowed to be eaten in, <laughs> in, the, wow. in the studio. That's yeah. funny. Uh, so anyways, I, I got there and Kirk walked me into the studio and he was like, can you just set up a vocal chain and, um, and make sure everything's working and put some reverb on it. And so I did, he had a C12 that kind of hung on a big, um, starboard stand, like on, from the other side of the SSL hung straight over the center section. Um, and he would, he would sit down in his chair. So there, this Mike hung um, right above his chair and to the right. Now, is the was, starboard, is that the triad orbit stand? Um, those guys made a, made a starboard. I guess, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. All right, been. well, anyway, sorry. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But it's you know, one, one of those huge ones, you yeah. know, big counterweight on it. Um, and, and then to the right of that, there was a little um, headphone box and then the, 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 the tape machine um, controls, and I set up. I set set the mic up. I got signal. It sounded fine, and um, and I turned around, and Prince was standing there. Just he just had walked in the room at some point when I was I had my back turned, and um, I introduced myself, and and he introduced himself, and and then um, we didn't shake hands. Like I remembered wishing I shook his hand at that point, but we didn't. Um, and then he asked me what kind of um, limiter I was using, and I put his vocal through uh, a Great River preamp and into a Blackface 1176. And I, po- I showed him that, and he asked me why I wasn't using an LA-2. And I was like, I, I can... I can switch it. And he was like, no, no, why aren't you using it? And I was just like, because I, I, I thought that one would sound cool. And then he sat down at the, at the mic and he started singing. And the, uh, the needle on the 1176 just exploded. <laughs> just completely exploded. And, and my, like, my gut was just like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> just like totally went, slammed. It to- totally slammed like uh, like as far like as hard as that thing can be slammed um and I, I went down to turn it down a little bit and he said don't touch anything it's perfect awesome and i was like great um and he he said can you come back in a couple hours and so he he had his band um living at a hotel down the road so he got me a room there and i just I, I didn't even go in the room. I went, got a cup of coffee, and I just started driving around, just like 
no way I was going to go sit on a bed watching TV. Right. Um, and, oh, oh, and, and after he checked the mic, um, he, he went out into the hall and came back with a two inch reel and was like, let's put this song on. And I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is, <laughs> this is my worst nightmare. I'd like, I've never put a reel of tape on a tape machine before. I've never done anything to with tape before. And I walked, I took the, the box that said electric lady on it. And I walked into the tape room, into the uh, machine room. And I just freaking did it. Like I didn't, I just put it on and hit rewind until the beginning and, and hit play and it worked. And, um, and, and then he said it was the wrong song and he gave me a different box, a different tape, different two inch reel. And I put that one on and then I, he called me like five hours later and I came in, I did a mix for him and, um, and then we burnt the CD and he walked me to the door and asked me if I could clear my schedule and I started working for him then. What a trip, man. What an awesome story. Total trip. It, it's still like, it's still, it's just kind of like, like the more that more time that passes, it's like, it feels a little less real for some reason. That's but, wild, man. That's wild. But it was, Did you, who was the first person you called when you got back home to your hotel? Um, you had to call somebody and be like, dude, you won't believe what just happened. Yeah. I, I don't, I was probably my dad. I remember, I remember my dad when I was just a little kid, like really little. I, I was definitely, we were living in New Jersey. So I had to have been like six or seven years old. I remember Prince being on the TV and he was playing acoustic guitar and like, and he would do these things where he would, he would stop playing and he would get up and dance and twirl around and then he would start playing again and you dance and twirl around and, and I remember my dad saying that he's the the best performer that's alive and and so I and I was never you know I was never a fan of his uh, yeah like I my knowledge of his music was basically little red corvette and and you know 1999 that was yeah, purple yeah. rain like that was it i didn't know he was so good like i had no clue how amazing that guy was that's a trip man well so, hey let's take a break for a minute and uh thank you for sharing that stories rockstars will be back in just a minute with evan for the jam session a reminder that we've got links to stuff we're talking about in the show notes including a playlist where you can go check out evan's work and uh listen to some of it right now and we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session The Spectra 1964 model was created by the missile engineers who are central in rolling out the systems that have protected the free world for over half a century. The extremely stable high circuit design of the 101 amplifier provides unequaled headroom, low noise, and linear output, irrespective of transient audio peaks, giving you clearer, punchier, dynamic recordings. During the height of record making, the 101 preamp was the perfect choice to build consoles for Tom Dowd, Muscle Shoals, Stack Studios, Ardent Studios, and New York City Records. 
Record Plant, bringing you the sounds of ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, King Crimson, John Lennon, and so many more. The Spectra 1964 legacy is carried on today through Bill Cheney and Jim Romney. Now you can get that same sound in your studio with the STX100 Mic Pre and STX500 EQ. Add the Cinemag Transformer BBDI and the C610 Complimeter, and you can have a truly awesome sound. Go to Spectra1964.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. It was 1971 in a New York City basement when Eventide revolutionized the audio world by introducing the world's first studio effects processor, the Instant Phaser, and the first digital effect, the H910 Harmonizer. Eventide soon followed with the Instant Flanger, Omnipressor, SP2016 Reverb, and H949 and H3000 Harmonizers, which have been favorites of A-list mixers like Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mick Kozowski, and Dave and heard on countless hit records over the decades. Today, Eventide brings all that sound to your stage and studio with modern solutions like the H9000 Harmonizer, their complete line of guitar pedals, including the versatile H9 Max, and transformative plugins like Micropitch, Physion, Black Hole, and Mangled Reverb. Take your next mix in your studio to a whole new level. Go to eventide.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you sick of bothering family and neighbors when you're just trying to rehearse or record your music? Do outside noises or computer fans get into your studio mics and ruin your recordings? You could book a pro studio to record every time, but that would add up quickly, and doing permanent construction to soundproof your studio can easily cost up to $100,000 or more. Trust me, I know. And you can't take that with you when you eventually move the studio. Don't you wish there was an easy solution right now? Whisperoom Isobooths offers a simple way to install Install a comfortable, quiet, ventilated ISO booth in your studio with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums in a variety of sizes. For 30 years, Whisperoom has been solving studio isolation needs worldwide with ISO booths that are shippable, portable, and can be assembled in an afternoon. Now you can get pro vocal recordings right in your home studio, practice whenever you want, and start using real guitar amps again. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booths when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest is Evan Bakke joining us from the Power Station in Connecticut. And um, we just got to hear what Prince's vocal chain is. That's pretty cool, dude. (laughs) 
Um, are you ready to jam? I'm ready. Yeah. All right, man. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you want to share more about it, but you were also talking sort of off mic about the the energy and the excitement and the thrill of of working with Prince in the studio and then going home and it's sort of like it's almost it was like reverse the way you said it. Like when you're at the studio, the the thrill just turns into just like business as usual, but then when you leave, it like comes flooding back again. Yeah, I think it was just more of like um I don't know. I guess it was, yeah. It would just I would get amped up on my way to the studio and 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 just kind of like you know it, I've had a lot of friends and that that have worked with him before and and it's kind of always this this general like saying that every day could be your last day working for him and he 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 might not like your T-shirt and send you home you right. know and. And so I would, that I would have that kind of that kind of adrenaline pumping, like okay, I, I might be walking in to get fired, and then I would walk in and and just focus and just get just do what I needed to do and and work super hard at it, and then and then yeah, like I'd, I'd get back in my car at the end of the day and be just really adrenalized at what it had just happened and super happy that i just saw that yeah what um so you you know that was one of your first chances really working with tape do you remember liking the sound of stuff playing back off tape um yeah yeah i mean it sounded sounded really cool i mean everything was 24 tracks so um so it was just like it it didn't really matter to me at that point because um it never you know i never listened back digitally in there so it was mm-hmm. always from tape so it always just kind of sounded like it did so yeah it was yeah. cool um what are some other things that you remember learning um you know whether it was ways of recording stuff or you know some approach to the uh, to mixing that you arrived at when you were there any any other takeaways um no i mean everything was was really his way um and even when it didn't make any sense like you, you would just you would do you basically you were working for him you, you were uh, i didn't make very many creative decisions um i mean there were there were a few times that i would mix and be by myself and he would come in and say cool or he would come in and say i don't like it and so it was, it, it was more just just getting things done really fast and moving on to the next thing yeah do you remember getting a sense that maybe that's the takeaway? Is um, sometimes you work with a successful artist, and it kind of doesn't matter how they do it; just that they they have a way of doing it so that they can do it. You know? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. Because I've seen that. I mean, like, um, you know, one of my mentors um, in in the first studio I worked at, he was very particular about how he did stuff, and there were many times where I'm like, that's so you know weird. Like, why are we doing it this way? How come we don't do it this new modern way or whatever? And um, meanwhile, you know, he just could consistently produce great records because he had a way of doing it. And I began to see that repeatedly, you know, in the world of recording. It's like there's there's a huge amount of value on having a system that works. It doesn't matter whether it's an old system, a new system, one in between, you know, makes sense to everybody else or is super unique. Totally. Yeah. I'm sure I do things where people look at it and have a better idea in their minds, but it just works for me. Yeah. Same with you. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, and you, you reminded us of that when you talked about like, you know, I use a print track. Oh, I guess I started doing that a while ago. Um, again, the, the important part is when you open up your old session, you know, it's going to work and you know where to find stuff and you know how to take notes on it and everything. Right. Yep. And it's just easy to, to, to know where you left off because you got a stereo track of where you left off. Um, did you get to record any any uh, instrumentation when you were working with Prince, drums and bass and guitars and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was with him for um, for a while. It was like um, I want to say it was it was definitely my main gig for about nine months. But I also went back after that a few times. So it was like a year and a half total. Um, so I did a lot of, a lot of band stuff, um, um, the horns, the, his horn section a couple times. Um, and I mean, he was a nasty keyboard player. So I did a lot of work with him when he was playing keys, but yeah, I, I did, I did a lot. I did a lot, a lot with him. Um, what are some things that, like any, any cool techniques that you can share about uh, recording drums or anything like that? Um, for him in particular or just in general? Uh, both. I like room mics. I love room mics. So I'll use, I'll use quite a few room mics and, um, mono and stereo. Um, I like to, I, I personally like to, to the sound of, of a more mono kit. I like, I like, yeah. I really like my drum centered. Um, I, it's not like a, a rule or anything like that, but, um, I typically mic a kit drummer's perspective and it ends up being somewhere really close to the center in the end. Yeah. I find that too. I find like I'm, I, I lean towards stereo when I'm thinking about micing up the drums, but when I'm actually listening to music I like or trying to get the mix to sound awesome, I really just care about the kick and the snare in the middle. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't really have like a a set of of standard practices when it comes to recording anything. Um, I like to just try, I like to try something new every time, and it, it's usually just kind of what I'm in the mood for, and and I'll do that. Dig it. All right, let's just pretend you got a session tomorrow, and you got to mic up drums, and it's a rock band, and you're not really sure what they sound like yet. What might you choose? I would start with a U forty seven about two feet in front of the kick drum and maybe two feet above it. Um, probably use a D twelve on the kick, maybe a four twenty one, or maybe an M eighty. Probably use an M eighty eight actually. That's a dynamic, uh, right? Yep. Uh, Fifty seven on the snare, probably top and bottom. Probably four twenty or probably four fourteens on the toms. Okay, condensers. Nice. Um, what, what about the pickup pattern on those mics? Um, I I like those things flat and usually with a little bit of pad on it. Uh, but don't you have to select cardioid, super cardioid? Oh, 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 yeah. I would be cardioid on on the toms for sure. Okay, dig. Um, actually, not for sure. I mean, <laughs> like maybe, probably. Right. Well, you got to um, start somewhere. 
Yeah, it'd probably, it'd probably be in cardioid. What are things uh, that would help you choose to do a different pickup pattern? Would it be like how the cymbals are bleeding in behind the mic or any of that stuff? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'd love I love the sound of mics and Omni just in general, and and so I would I would say it's either it would either be Omni or or cardioid. Um, but um, you know, I really when it comes to to toms, like toms are one thing that I will I will go into Pro Tools and I will just cut out all the bleed. Yeah, like yeah. I I don't I don't care for that. Unless it's maybe like a jazz thing, I don't I don't care for it. Yeah. Um, In other words, rock stars. What we what we mean is just like just the sound of the toms constantly ringing through from the kit when they're not being played. It's you, basically clean it's those basically tracks up. putting a gate on the toms, but yeah, yeah. It's a lot and easier then, to set gates now when you can just edit the toms out with Pro Tools than it was when you had to find the perfect gate setting. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, I don't, I don't mess with that anymore either. I just cut them. Um, um, how about your overheads? What do you? What are some? What would be uh, your setup for tomorrow? Um, probably U sixty sevens. Probably Norman U sixty sevens. I really like U sixty sevens on overheads or Cole Cole's forty thirty eights. Um, if it if I wanted something darker, mm-hmm. um, and um, and I would use. If I didn't use the coals on overheads, they would definitely be in the room, um, along with probably a C twenty four. Nice. And what about the spacing of those overheads? What's a what's a starting place? I like them. I, I kind of look at them more as like cymbal microphones rather than like um, like kit overhead mics. So I keep them pretty low to the cymbals, uh, and and make sure they just they when I'm in the room I, I don't really ever use a, a tape measure or anything like that but I like to just make sure the snare and the kick are, are right up the middle right so they're about the same distance from each of those two mics so you Pretty might close. you might space them out so that they're sort of in the vicinity of the crashes or the cymbals yeah exactly um, what about hi-hat mics do you find those to be useful yeah um, I usually put like a uh, KM84 on a hi hat. If I end up using it, cool. Same, same with the ride. It, usually a KM84. If I were to do it tomorrow, that's probably what I would do. Where does it go? I mean, what what part of the hi hat do you point the mic at? Is it would you point it towards the snare, or would you be sort of pointing I'm, away from the snare? I just do it vertical, right on the outside of it. So meaning it's right above the hi hat, just looking straight down. Yep. Okay. Yep. Take it. Um, I mean, pretty much, pretty much always. That's that's what it'll be. Okay. Cool. All right. Cool. So it's oh, really yeah. just it's just really seeing the detail of the stick on the hat and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I find that uh, you know it's a good reminder sometimes to remember that that even the hi hat, kind of like the toms, like doesn't necessarily have to live in there perfectly balanced all the time. Sometimes it's useful for that verse where you just need to hear the hi hat up closer. Yep. You know, but it can go away in the chorus or whatever. If somebody's, you know, yep. a big challenge for me is when somebody opens the hi hat halfway and starts doing, it's just like, boy, it just right. takes over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> um, cool, man. Uh, what about, 
let's talk about um, some of the records that you've done too. So, um, you know, one of the things I wrote down was that the this you, you worked with an artist named Sam Nietzsche or Nietzsche. Yeah, Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah Nitch. little girl. And there was like yeah. a real nice use of space and reverb on the guitars. Well, first of all, let me just preface this by saying that your whole playlist, like everything really sounded great, you know? Oh, sweet. Thanks, man. Yeah. That's and, cool. And so, you know, I'm listening to this and the space on the guitars is really nice. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk about how you like to look for cool ambience in a recording or a mix, you know, delays, reverbs. Um, and mm -hmm. then and then uh, one other detail on that is it sounded like, it might have been a sample, but there was some glockenspiel and stuff in that in that track. Mm -hmm. Yep, that was real. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that that can be a little tricky to record well sometimes. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about how you record things like glockenspiel and other mallet instruments. Yeah. Um, well, the guitars um, that Sam Sam had um, an awesome setup. He basically called me out of the blue and said he wanted to, me to just hire the band for him. Um, he, we, he had sent me a bunch of demos and we've been talking and he finally got to a point where he was ready to, to just, um, to just let go of anything that he had done in the past. And he really just wanted to try something different. So I, I had, um, Steve Gould on drums, who's a great drummer and Ian Allison on bass, who's an amazing bass player. And then the guitars, that's all uh, this guy named Jasper Nephew. Everything, all the effects. Um, I mean, I'm, I might have added some some stuff to it every once in a while, but all the stereoizing, everything, that is Jasper, and he is so good. And all all that stuff is is first take. I mean, he, he is so fast and so good at, at doing that kind of stuff. Nice. So you're saying it's, you're basically recording a stereo two amps or something like that. And that, yeah, I was, let's see, I, I used, um, a Fender twin. Um, I think it was probably from the seventies. And then, um, on the other side, uh, a three monkeys orangutan, um, nice. Which is which is a really cool, awesome amp. It's super cool, and and yeah, I mean, he didn't he he walked in. He did he could care less what kind of amp <laughs> was being used. He would just plug into it, and he just comes out of his 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 pedal board, which is huge, massive pedal board. It like almost like the first time I worked with him, I I saw his pedal board and was just like, you got to be kidding me! I don't, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't want this in here like. There's no way, and then and then I started listening to him play, and he's he's lightning fast, and he's so good. That's awesome. Yeah, I you know it's funny because I've seen pedal boards come in the studio and be a tone killer, and I've seen them come in the studio and be the answer to what the song needed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his feet are moving uh, just like his hands are throughout the entire song. I mean, he's he's turning stuff on and off. The entire take, every take. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, all right. So then um, what, are, what are some other thoughts about like, you know, what mic do you stick in front of amps like that? Um, look, it kind of varies on that too, but I really, for electric guitars, I really like um, Sennheiser 441s for a dynamic mic. And, and then I'll, I'll use you know, a one Royer 121 a lot. Mm -hmm. And also, um, really, I had never used one until I came to 
to the power station New England, but uh, the Neumann M269, which is kind of like the best way I can describe it is like it's like a little bit more of a hi-fi U67. Um, It's a tube mic. It sounds really cool. So I've I've been using that a lot on guitars too. Okay, cool. Um, So basically a condenser, a big diaphragm condenser mic. Right. Tube. Yeah, definitely Tube. tube. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and then what about the glockenspiel and mallets question? What thoughts do you have about I, that? I, I don't think I could actually tell you what mic I used on that for him, but um, I would guess it was a, a Cole's 4038 a ribbon. Okay, or maybe so doing like, a ribbon. Maybe, yeah, maybe an RCA 44, like something, something like that. Um, why would you choose those mics to record an instrument like a glockenspiel? Just the softness of those microphones and such a transient instrument, and I don't, I don't really mic things like that close. Is probably four or five feet away, maybe even more. Um, and so, just, just really like finding something that that is going to satisfy a sound that's hard to sound satisfying. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's a, a fair takeaway? To remind ourselves that sometimes the mic that you choose is sort of the opposite of the instrument you're about to record. Like, if, yeah, the, if the instrument is dark, then a bright mic might be the right choice because it helps bring out the the detail. And sure. if it's a super bright instrument like drums and cymbals, then the darker mic tends to be a good choice because it sort of contrasts it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. Um, what about compression and limiting? Do you find that those are really useful for like, I mean, I've experimented sometimes and, you know, you do a really fast attack and release and you you can really manage the spike in a glockenspiel hit, for example. Yeah, I guess so. I also, also don't know if I would have recorded with one or not, or even if I added one. I don't know. I think, I think with, with that, I would, I would probably, honestly, if I were to do that tomorrow too, I'd probably just throw up a ribbon mic and put it through a channel on the Neve and roll off some highs. And right, that's that's about it. I probably wouldn't compress it. Dig it. All right. Yeah. Unless, yeah. Unless it needed it. I don't. Yeah. But I probably wouldn't start with that. All right. So another record you did was um, Danny Morrison Honey Drip. And, uh, you know, which rocks pretty hard, but it still yeah. sounds smooth, you know? So I wonder yeah. if you wanted to talk about ways that you can keep a rock record from getting too harsh. Um, sure. You know, things like vocals, oh, yeah. guitars, and then, um, you know, just whatever, the overall sound. Yeah, I mean, I think that that probably goes back to the players, too. Um, that was uh, Jeremy Tapero. Um, on drums who I, who had worked with in um, St. Paul. He came out to the power station for a little bit and we worked with this guy, Solomon Silber, who's an amazing guitar player. Um, and the two of them really wrote the music and Danny came in later um, and and did the vocals to it. But um, I think I think we ended up with U eighty seven on Danny. I think that's what ended up sounding the coolest on his vocal, um, and the drums were, um, you know, some some darker cymbals and yeah. 
and um, and and Jeremy Jeremy hits really hard, and and he doesn't he doesn't necessarily hit the cymbals super hard, which I really like in a drummer. If it, heavy heavy consistent hits on the on the actual drums and controlled um, cymbal hits, is, yeah, it's so key. super helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about the times when you you get a track to work with and it's already a little bit too bright? Um, are there some useful ways to manage that at the mix stage? Um, yeah, I mean, assuming I'm doing it in the, but yeah, I mean, I think I think like tube gear or 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 tape emulators really help with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like I really like the Studer tape machine, the U87 or the U87, UAD. Or the, U, yeah. the UAD stuff. Um, I think that that's like the first thing I would do if something sounded too harsh. We'd maybe put a Fab Filter EQ on it and follow that up with a with that tape machine, and then kind of look at it like it's ground zero at that point. And so Fab Filter EQ. Like maybe not making any choices yet, but just being ready, or would you maybe just, even? Yeah, probably just being ready, or yeah. just or just finding finding the frequencies that are bugging me and just get rid of them. Yeah, I know the newer Fab Filter. Um, what is it? The Pro Q3 or something like that. I think it has dynamic EQ in it, where you can sort of manage a frequency range. Right. Um, I don't know that I've tried that on a full mix. I've certainly tried multiband compression on a full mix, and I've I've you know, that's kind of similar, I guess. I find mm-hmm. that can help sometimes, but it can also take the power out of what you're doing. And it, so that's always a balancing act. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, don't use a lot of multiband compression. I, re- I, I I don't know why, but I just don't. No, there you go. Maybe I need to stop because your record sounded real good. <laughs> or maybe I need to start. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do. Whatever we're doing, yeah. we all need to try the other thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so another aspect of the Honey Drip record was um, the mi- the overall mix had this nice like pumping deep kick thing going on, and I wonder if you want yeah. to talk about getting that kind of effect. Um, I think that that was probably I um I know what you're talking about, and I don't know if I actually was like purposefully doing that effect on mm-hmm. like or or going for it um to to actually do that but i think that when it actually ended up happening i liked it and left it but i i i really like this to imagine the drummer the drummer <laughs> hitting the the drums like i really want to be able to like visualize that particular drummer in that particular room yeah. hitting that particular drum. And so with the kick drum, you know, I tried, I think that I was, I was trying really hard to imagine Jeremy hitting that kick drum with his pedal. And like, he's, he's a super tall guy. And so just trying to, trying to get it to sound the way that he plays. And um, that's probably what it ended up happening. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is in rocks, mixes and rock tracks I always I mean I often find that I want to have a sense of the kick drum but whenever I try and add 
more beater, you know, to to make a cut through the track, uh, that can often be like, ah, that doesn't seem right. It's like too alien. Uh-huh. And uh, and that the the pumping effect where the low end of the kick sort of affects all the other instruments and makes them, you know, pump just uh-huh. a little bit in the compression is a, is a cool way to make the whole track see, seem exciting. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that it would there's probably a fi- a fine line to to where you could take that too far pretty easily but totally but yeah i agree i think i think um i think for for certain stuff like that was it's a cool way to think about it um you know uh, you know when you're when you're using something like an ssl a, a quad compressor um or anything that's you know stereo compression on the whole mix for example or even just on the drums a lot of the times those might have a sidechain filter where you can sort of do a um, yep. a low cut on the side chain. Do, yep. you, do you ever use that feature in situations and do you find that's useful? Um, you mean to just like to let those lower, lower frequencies go through without being compressed or be yeah. or have it? Yeah, I yeah. do that often. Yeah, I like that a lot. Can you describe, um, like help us understand how that's useful and when, what to listen for? Um, sure. Um, I, I think that um, um, I think yesterday I just mixed a song um, where I had a I have a stereo compressor um, on the drum bus, so all of the drums are coming out of the two-channel drum bus, and when the kick drum, you know, I, it, my, the kick drum is fairly loud with. With a with quite a bit of low end and and without that filter, um, the the low end of that kick drum is going to completely affect the compression of everything. So if you have yeah. that filter on, it's going to let that low end through, and you don't have that issue anymore. Okay, so it's almost it's kind of the same topic we were just talking about. It's just another way to control that pumping effect. Totally, and that's or, probably or avoid it possibly. Or that would that would be avoiding it in that scenario, yeah. Um, but that's also probably what happened in Honey Drip too, where instead of the, all the drums being pumped together, I would with with the low end of the kick, I probably would have let all that low end through, and then and then had something else doing that pumping thing, probably on the stereo bus. I, I would think. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you because yeah. if you wanted to affect everything a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably what happened. Um, okay, so uh, you know this does. I'm glad you. I'm glad you. I'm glad you like that song. It's it's it was a cool song. Yeah, it was cool, man. It was fun to listen oh, yeah. through all this stuff. Um, yeah, nice. So you know this brings up the topic of low end. I, we're talking about kick drums, bass guitars, things like that. Um, do you want to talk any more about how you might? address kick and bass in a mix and stuff you think about or, or ways that those two, do you route them together so that they get treated together? Do they get separated? Mm-hmm. Just anything you can think of. I think I, I did route them together for a while, um, for a long time. Um, and, and I've kind of recently gone to, uh, this, this like idea of, of that. I, I really no longer have a template that I work off of. I was working off like a, a really specific Pro Tools template that I'd built up over time, and um, and I I think that it was 
I started to realize that it was holding me back from trying new things. So mm-hmm. now every time I mix a song, I start complete from 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 scratch completely. Um, and and so so that that gives me the ability to make a decision whether or not I want to 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 put the drums and bass together every single time rather than starting with them that way. Um, What's the, what do we listen for if we, if we put the drums and the, well, first of all, what does it mean to put the drums and bass together? And second of all, what are we listening for as a result? I think that, I think just to be totally honest with you, I, I am 100% relying on my gut the entire time. I'm, I'm not, I'm never worried about like technical things or mm-hmm. or why things should be a certain way or what frequencies are being affected and why they're being affected. I'm just just going with where my my gut's telling me to go. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's like that's really the main thing that I'm listening for is what what my what my gut's telling me to do. And if I feel like the bass and drums should be affected the same way through a similar or the same compressor just to see what that does i'll just try it and if it works then it it stays and if it doesn't then it goes yeah i Um, think sometimes that's a good takeaway just knowing that hey there's two different ways to try this and the only answer is try them both as fast as you can and pick the one that feels better yeah yeah that's kind of it Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you're ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own records, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSona Studio One. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is these techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you're using right now. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads for you to practice mixing and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mixmaster Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, so let's see. What about... um you know, other things that help you make sure that your low end in general is is right in your mixes. I've got um, I've got three three sets of speakers that I that I that I listen on in the studio. Um, the PMC IB one S's or IBS ones. The they're awesome. So I track. I pretty much track everything through those. Um, and I really, I really feel confident with where the low end is while I'm tracking. So those, I'm, those are the big ones they, where you can really ones. hear the bass and everything. Yeah, yep, yep. They sound so cool. I love them. Um, yeah. And I mix on, I mix on them pretty often too. But, um, but when, but pretty much when I'm mixing, I've got a set of NS10s, um, and that I've had forever. They're my first speakers that I ever purchased. And um, and then uh, my friend, do you did you ever meet Norman Drews? Who he just passed away. Oh, no, like sorry weeks to ago. hear that. That um, oh, sorry to hear about Norman. Yeah. yeah so the timing yeah. of this this will be a little later. It'll be more in a couple of weeks. But 
Yeah. Yeah, I heard about that. So Norman was um, um, uh, Atomic Instruments. Yeah. Yeah, Norm was, he was a really close friend of mine. We worked at Paisley Park together. We worked at Electric Lady together. Wow. Um, he built he built the speakers for me. Um, so I've got uh, I've got NS NS10s and his speakers that that are called. They weren't actually called anything when he made them for me, but now I think they're called the six tens or yeah, something. Yeah, those are such good sounding speakers. Yeah, yeah. So I've got those, and and there's never any question as to where the low end is on those. Wow. I, I know I know right away. That's that's pretty wild. Um, I, I feel like now if we're gonna um, give a shout out to somebody, uh, another person that that recently when we recorded this just passed is um, Steve Sadler here in Nashville, who is the yeah, MCI man. guy. Yeah. And, um, so we miss you, Steve. And, and Ed Journey. And like, Ed Journey too. It was a tough week. Yeah. Tough week. Now, of course, when everybody hears this, it'll be like, well, that was not a while ago. But that's yeah, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, still. Yeah, and then Steve. The reason I mentioned Steve too is also because you talked about you know your experience with tape and everything, and that is uh, that Steve losing Steve is the closing of an uh, a little bit of an era on tape, just because sure. he, he had so much knowledge about the MCI tape machines. Yeah, man. Yep. Um, yep. Okay, so uh, let's see. Getting the bass right is is checking it on these different speakers. I feel like it's a good reminder and takeaway what you said too about tracking with the P. Um, PMCs and then um, mixing on the NS10s. It's that reminder that the uh, when you're tracking, that's a good time to make sure that when the shit's turned up really loud and it's cranking, that you hear the you hear that bottom and the low end the way you want it, and you can really feel the energy. and And it's also tracking is a little bit less of a critical listening time than mixing is, you know. Yeah, I, f- I feel yeah. it's, it's like you said it, you said it, you get it right, and you're like, cool, and now it's out of your hands, and it's up to the musician for a while. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I definitely work really hard on on getting. I I, def- I commit a lot, so you know, I'm EQing everything all the time when I'm tracking, um, and and so I want whatever's going into into the machine to sound pretty cool and yeah i think the pmc has really helped me feel confident in that and so you're um the eq that you're reaching for is that 8068 a lot of times yeah uh yeah i mean that um and we've got a handful of poltec eq eqp ones and um gml 8200 so like between those those are definitely my hardware EQs. But yeah, the Neve, I love those EQs. They're super cool. Yeah, and the Neve has got, I think we got low cut and a high cut and then three band EQ or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So it might be like cutting out some some lows, maybe adding a little bass or, or cutting it, and then um, top and finding the mids that you like. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> All right, cool. I'm just, yeah. it's been a while since I used that 8068, <laughs> but I, yeah. all I remember is that everything I got a chance to do, which wasn't a lot, sounded better than anything I'd ever done. Yeah, you should come back, you should come out and visit sometime. You would love it. Oh, I'd lo- I definitely would love to. Um, yeah. Talk about the wood in that room. So the room at Power Station, it, what is it, like knotty pine on the walls or something? It just really looks yeah. In- inviting. Yeah, it's all knotty pine. And there, 
they're uh, like there's actually in this whole space um there's there's a lot of surfaces there's like there's so many walls in this room and nothing's parallel uh, which is which is kind of kind of like it, it's it's easy to like think like well obviously but when you see a like many walls there are it's kind of crazy that there's actually not um and and so the all the boards are spaced differently um like in the big room there all the the pine boards are are like maybe i don't know an inch and a half apart from each other and in between there's um some sort some sort of absorption and then in this back room that i'm sitting in the boards are maybe uh four inches apart so there's there's a lot more absorption so you you get this like really pleasing reflective thing and this really pleasing absorption happening all the time um so it's cool it's fun yeah, I mean, I think when I think about all those slats too, I seem to remember that that's uh, a form of Helmholtz resonator or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that stuff works, but yeah, yeah I don't either. But I think it's a combination of um, having a like a certain frequency that it's absorbing, but it also diffuses the reflection of the sound. Exactly. Yep. So that's cool. Um, well, anyway, yeah, I'm ready to redo all the walls in here and make it look like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. might, might take me a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, cool. So another record you worked with uh, is a band called Hippocampus Monsoon. as um, a track in, the, in our playlist. And it just, you know, it's a, a band on stage performing, but I'm looking at the mics and I'm like, it's just live mics. You know, it's like wireless mics that being sung on and stuff like that. And I, it, but the your mix of it sounds great, you know. And I thought it, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, doing a well recorded and and mixed live stage track. What are some important things that you have to get right, um, maybe when you're recording and when you're mixing? Yeah, um, I I actually did do the live sound for that. It was the first time I had I'd done live sound for something like that, so it was it was fun, um, but. Um, but they're, they're really talented. Um, and they, they sing really well. They play their instruments really well. And, um, and I, I, I think that that was just direct outs of a console. So there's nothing special about recording it. Everything was, was just kind of preamps. I guess in all uh, fairness, I don't remember if there was a drum kit on stage. So that might be one challenge. Not yeah, there, no, there was a drum kit, but he's playing, um, brushes so okay, it's like right. kick snare and hi-hat maybe yeah um so get the stage volume right first <laughs> yeah and and they they could have been they could have been in ears too um like they no you know what they did have wedges they were on wedges there but i think that i think it was the way that i looked at that was like i would look at any other song is that it needed to feel um like the the way that the guys wrote it it's it's a sad song um and it kind of feels like like the way that i wanted it to sound was like it you could have done better on something in your life 
at one point and you know you could have and i think you know the, that's the way that it was sung and performed and um so i think that i think that's really the best way i can describe the sound of that is just making it sound the way that the song is supposed to sound well, or feel um and then the mics um like the vocals sound great on it yet they're i guess they're just I, dynamic I probably did, wireless I probably, did, I probably did a lot of EQing um and a lot of probably a lot of compressing mm -hmm. um but I I don't I don't I I couldn't tell you what I actually did but I think that um I think those mics sounded good yeah I think he just he sang well and they sounded good um what wasn't there some acoustic guitar too like maybe a DI yeah. or something like that yeah 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 there was acoustic and it might have been mic'd also but not coming the mic I don't think was going through the system. Do you um, find do you find DIs to be useful in the recording stage? I rarely use DIs on guitars in the studio, but I, um, on bass I use them every day. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. But, um let's I got one more question on one of your records uh Christoph Crane all, yeah. all zone or I'm not sure how to pronounce it. All I, seven I, on. I, all seven it, one or something. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think it's supposed to be alone, but oh, I don't alone. Know. Sorry. Oh, maybe I, I, I don't maybe know. I, maybe I just accidentally stuck a seven in there. I don't know. Th there is a seven in there. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's got a great vocal tone, and um, I uh, you know amongst the rest of it too. Uh, it's a hip hop track too. So I wondered if you wanted to talk about some good techniques for recording and mixing rap vocals and hip hop. Yeah, I I think that might have been the only hip hop song I've ever done. Um. And you know, I was into it. Like that's why that's why I sent it to you. So I, you, what you're think, saying is I you quit cool. at the top. You, you're just like <laughs> nailed it, done. Yeah, I mean that was produced by a guy named Graham O'Brien, um, who's who's really good. Um, and I think I used a lot of um, effects on the vocal. I think I used um, um, some like I don't know some some distortion stuff and some there's uh what's the name of that delay that i was totally into at that point um mm, echo the, like echo boy no, or something like that no no the uh the company that makes like the free reverb valhalla delay it was the the um ah. the freak echo or something like that i don't i can't remember i can't remember what it's called but i use that a lot and that has like a a totally cool um like almost you can take a vocal and make it sound like it's like inside your ear um, i like that I, th I think i probably used that and and then really just liked to to turn that kick drum really loud and and make sure his vocal was like kind of just kept kept floating right in the middle yeah. Well, it definitely has a, the vocal sounds like it's just right up there and it's not going away. Not, yeah. Not too loud, but it never disappears, you know? Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you're going to do things like distortion on vocals and stuff like that, are there any good tricks or reminders about like, hey, you, you actually need to like edit the starts and stops of this or you need to gate it or any of that kind of stuff if it's a parallel effect? Yeah, I would say generally don't do effects on a parallel 
level like that. If I were to put distortion on a vocal, I, I would probably insert it right on the Pro Tools channel. Um, and and yeah, I mean, if if there's any any unnatural sounding noises, then you got to get rid of those. And yeah. if it's if it sounds cool with the distortion, then then he might be going in on on uh, on some crossfades to get that to sound good. Yeah. Um, there was another overdub in there or some track that had just like sounded real uh, wider than real life stereo effects is what I wrote down. Um, uh-huh. Do you have any, like if you, when you're like, oh, I want to make this sound kind of 3D, like it's wrapping around your head. Are there any like things that you would reach for or any advice about like, you know, how to get sound effects like that? Yeah. Um, I, I like to use, um, a couple different things. I really like the Waves Mondo mod for for stuff like that. That kind of has that like um, that that thing that can kind of feel like it's wrapping around your head a little bit. Um, and then um, I also like the um, the UA Precision Widener. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't usually put that like right on it on a track, but I'll I'll use that. Off a off a send like off an aux send and so if I'm if I've got a guitar that uh, feels cool at the level that it's at but I want it to kind of have a a little more space from the center I'll I can I can take uh, that aux send and pan it to wherever that that track is panned on the track and then just boost it into a widener and it just kind of kind of makes it feel like it's exiting the speakers a little bit. So well, let me let me see if I understand that one again. So the guitar is really a mono miking sound. But uh-huh. We're also sending it to the widener and that makes it feels like it's just a little bit more stereo and wider. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I don't know if I explained that well. So if I had like a a, a mono guitar that's panned all the way to the left and mm-hmm. I take take a, a aux send to a stereo Aux track, and on that stereo track, I put that precision widener, and I and I choose the the left and right on that widener. If you send that guitar to the left side of that widener, it kind of whatever phasing it's doing is kind of just pushing that sound a little farther out than than uh, it would be without it. I see. So, so it's not like we're trying to make the guitar sound stereo. We're just trying to make it sound like it's more left than left. Exactly. Left. Okay. Exactly. Cool, man. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that and breaking that down. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, so, let me, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Sorry. That's <laughs> all. It's all good. Uh, well, I was going to say, let's jump into some of our closing questions here as we roll out. Um, yeah. When you were starting out and recording, what do you feel like was holding you back? Oh, um, it was probably the music I was listening to. <laughs> was was probably pretty freaking terrible. <laughs> was it all edited to death or something? Yeah, probably. Yeah, it was probably probably a lot of that. <laughs> I seem to remember yeah. one of the first things that struck me about that era of like super edited music was that um, you could do like incredible mutes that couldn't exist before. Like you could just yeah, make right. everything go <laughs> dead silent for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was into that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's worth learning about. It's worth exploring until you're sick of it and you don't care anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 
Um, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving in the studio? Um, prob- probably um, uh, Neil Dorsman's become a really good friend of mine. Um, and he's such a good engineer and he's been through so much. And, and I think the last time I saw him, he was just like, make everything sound really good. And, and I know that, I know that it sounded, sounds like super obvious, but like he's so detailed on every single thing that he records that, that it doesn't matter if it's just like a, a split second sound that's coming in in the middle of the song and is never heard again he's going to make sure that it sounds amazing before it gets recorded and so i think that 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 was some pretty strong advice yeah that's a good reminder um there's a guy here a friend of mine named ken coomer who played drums Uh with wilco and produced a lot of great records um and i think he gave me the shared the anecdote once that supposedly came down from prince who you worked with that like you should be able to solo any track. And I think that meant like you should be able to solo it and it should sound cool even if it's by itself, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there's truth to it. Yeah, I think there's truth to that, yeah. Like don't let something be crappy just because you're like, oh, this doesn't, we don't need to worry about this. Exactly. Then why would it be there (laughs) unless it's helping? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, you want to share one more recording tip, hack, or secret sauce? Anything that the rock stars could use on their next session? Um, yeah, I think that I think something that I've just kind of realized over the past couple of years is that uh, I don't really have like a like a strong like novelty for for recording to tape. Um, like it does, it's not something that I'll do just because it's tape. Um, or because it does a certain thing, I, I, but I love the sound of strings and horns through tape. I think that it is the best way to record strings and horns. Nice. I, I would say that's the best recording hack I got right now. All right, good one. And if you don't have a tape machine, use a tape plug-in. Exactly, yep. All right, yep. so um, how about a, a favorite hardware tool in the studio or something you're excited about now, something physical? Um. We've got a an old like one one of a really old U forty seven best mic I've ever used. All right, so, dig it. Yeah. Um, how about a favorite hard uh, software tool or something you're excited about right now? Uh, I think the only plugin that I definitely, without a doubt, use on every song would probably be the the UA one forty plate with. Okay. Uh, I put an EQ on the front and back of it, but I love that reverb. I think it's amazing. What do you do with the EQ? What should the rock stars know about? Like, oh, I put an EQ on there. Oh, now what do I do with it? I I I make sure that there is no like artificial S sound in my reverbs. I do not like the sound of of that washed out S sound. Yeah, in it seems reverb, like that was so. a big thing in the eighties, and really, yeah. When when I hear that I I I get I get super uncomfortable, so I get rid of that. <laughs> All right, dig it. Man, that's yeah. probably the answer. Is like the EQ is there to get rid of whatever's making you uncomfortable about the reverb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So sometimes you <laughs> dial it in. You like that reverb's pretty good, but ah, it just doesn't feel right. And sometimes it's as simple as like 
just get rid of things that don't need to be there. Yeah, yeah. Roll off the high end, roll off low end, and that usually does it. Nice. Um, how about a resource or tip for the business side of doing this? You've been doing this for a minute. Um, you know, you, I guess you're chief engineer, which I don't know if that means you're doing studio management or anything like that as well. But do you have anything you want to share with the rock stars about um, doing this for more than just a hobby? Um, yeah, I think that um, I think probably something I learned the hard way, but um, I, I'm just honest with everybody right away, off the right right at the beginning, and and I base every relationship that I have, whether it's someone who wants to come book the studio or if, or if I'm going to mix something for somebody, it's just make sure that foundation is of that relationship is built on honesty and it'll work. Yeah. Communication um, is pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like don't, yeah, don't lie. And, and, and then you're good and that'll be good. And those, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of my best friends are people that, started as clients and that wouldn't be the case if there was if there if it wasn't built on good communication and honesty yeah so you start out by going hey listen guys i just want you to know that as we enter this session instinctively i really want to pick a fight with all of you and get you <laughs> in, in fight amongst yourselves but but i'm not going to so i'm being i'm really? letting you know it's like a straight dog <laughs> like <laughs> You just like can't get rid of some of those old things. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> really want to pick a fight with everyone. <laughs> if, you, if, if you're not pulling each other's hair out, then I don't, just don't feel right. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about you know uh, staying organized? Obviously, something you learned early on. Any tips yeah, or, yeah, or something for that, um, or like an online resource that will help the rock stars keep their their sessions or their studios organized? Um, you can shoot me an email. And I will send you a, a PDF that I give to all the assistants who work here. Ooh, and it just, sweet. It just show, just, it, I mean, I have not gotten that far on it. It's like just a few pages, but kind of it. It's it's as detailed as I've gotten into like sharing how I need things to be done with other people. Um, and, and I can show you that, and you can take it and like it or hate it. I don't care. <laughs> nice. Should we just add yeah. that to the, uh, to the blog post in the show notes? Sure. Yeah. All right. So the, this last question is hypothetical here. Um, we're going to take the way back studio machine and you're going to go back in time, find young Evan Baki and say, listen, dude, put down your Alvarez for a moment. I got to talk to you. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself? Oh man. Um, <laughs> uh, I would I would say make sure everybody is having fun. Yeah. And um, s- stop doing projects that you hate. Mm. And stop editing. <laughs> that's that's probably what I would say. Yeah. That's funny. Do you feel like the more you do projects that you love, the less editing you started doing? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially when I started hiring session guys. Minnesota Minnesota has. I know. I know. Like I've never done 
like a gig with session guys in Nashville. And, and I, and I know that it's probably a great experience. Um, but there are some really great session guys in Minnesota, like really great. And I fly them out here often. Um, so, so as soon as I started using those guys, it really opened my mind up to like, okay, this is awesome. Well, it's like, viciously cold nine months out of the year. They got nothing to do except rehearse. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sit in the studio all night. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Evan, thanks so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us, man. Total blast hanging out with you and hearing these cool stories, man. I mean, yeah, after thanks, all, Lidge. I, I'm pretty sure we just learned uh, uh, Prince's vocal chain. That's pretty That's pretty badass. So There you go. Yeah. I don't know how long it stayed that way, but <laughs> it was it was his chain for a little bit. There you go, man. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Well, let the Rockstars know how they can find you. Uh, where should they go online to follow you and uh, go check out Power Station and call you to make the uh, next hit record? Yeah. Um, you can go. I've got a website. It's just evanbaki.com. Um there's an email link there. You can go there. Um, powerstationne.com is the studio website. Uh, you can also reach me there. Um, and then uh, Instagram, I think, is powerstationne. All right, and cool. That's it. And Rox, as a reminder, um, Baki is spelled B-A-K-K-E. That's right. All right, dig it. Well, Evan, thanks so much, man. Look forward to hanging with you, and I can't wait to come see the power station sometime. Yeah, thanks, Lidge. It was awesome, man. All right, man. Talk soon. Cheers. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com review for an easy explanation. And remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever now, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free course at mixmasterbundle.com and if you want more free content from recording studio rockstars all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com email again that's rsrockstars.com email to enter your name and email and i'll keep you in the loop with articles videos podcast updates and even free gear giveaways for your studio just look for the link in the show notes below thanks so much for listening and thanks for being a rockstar i'm lid shaw and this is recording studio rockstars now go make Make great music. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, Rockstars. I also want to give a big thank you to our sponsors who helped make this episode possible. OWC, Whisperoom, Eventide Audio, Spectra 1964, and Roswell Pro Audio. You'll find links to all these wonderful sponsors in our show notes. These are all things that I highly recommend you check out for your studio. They're going to help you make your best record ever. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next episode. Cheers.